Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Most frontline Ukraine troops killed within four hours. So this is an article from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. A retired Marine fighting in Ukraine told ABC News that the front lines are a meat grinder where soldiers survive an average of four hours. So this is an account from a guy named Troy Offenbecker, who's a former U.S. Marine who's been fighting in Ukraine. And he talked to ABC about this. You know, I don't, who knows exactly how accurate his estimate is there, but I think it shows just how brutal the battle is and and how heavy Ukraine's casualties are. He's saying the average life expectancy of a Ukrainian soldier on the front line is only four hours. This is specifically in that battle around the city of Bakhmut in Donetsk. And we've seen, uh, you know, the U.S. and other Western countries supporting Ukraine say, you know, that they think Ukraine is probably expending too many resources and too many lives trying to defend Bakhmut. And Russia just really started making gains around the city. You know, they've been locked in battle for months and months, and there's been a lot of casualties the whole time, and, and Russia's been enclosing the city in a circle lately, and but Ukraine is still, their forces are still in there trying to defend the city, and it looks like just so many people are dying in this battle, this artillery battle that's happening. So in January, Germany estimated that Kiev was losing a three-digit number of soldiers daily fighting for Bakhmut. And often Becker's commentary suggests that the situation may be getting even worse for Ukrainian soldiers. He said Russian attacks on the city are not letting up, and it's turned into a meat grinder. He said the artillery is nonstop. They're using a ton of shells. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Kyle mentions how you know the U.S. and NATO have mentioned you know, the, the, the huge amount of artillery that Ukraine's been using, uh, the head of NATO Stoltenberg, he recently said, you know, Ukraine's using more shells than we can produce than all of NATO can produce. So I think that again, is another thing that demonstrates just how heavy and brutal this battle is. Um, and it's not clear, you know, I've seen a lot of estimates, people guessing what the casualties are in this war, uh, on the Ukrainian side, you know, they're keeping a very tight lid on the casualty numbers. You know, that's basically a, a secret. Um, I know Mark Milley said over 100,000 on both sides. And I've seen other estimates, you know, and that was back in, I believe, November, maybe. And I've seen other estimates uh, that put the Ukrainian death toll around 250,000. I think that's what Colonel uh, McGregor said recently. Um, and, you know, I... I think that could be accurate, but again, I'm not sure. So I'm not going to really make a guess here, um, but it's definitely bad. It's definitely hundreds of thousands of people are, are, are being killed in this war. Um, so it's just bad news. And they're still hanging on to that city. Like I said, they're, they're, they're not pulling out, even though it looks like they're just losing so much trying to defend it. All right, the next one here, Medvedev is back again, and he says that the West pumping weapons into Ukraine could bring an apocalypse. So this is Dmitry Medvedev, former Russian president. He's currently the deputy 
of Russia's Security Council. He said in an op-ed that was published on Sunday that the Western policy of pouring weapons into Ukraine could lead to apocalypse. So he said, quote, one could continue to pump weapons into the neo-fascist Kiev regime and block any opportunity to revive negotiations. Our enemies are doing just that, not wanting to understand that their goals obviously lead to a total fiasco. Lose for everyone, collapse apocalypse. When the former life will have to be forgotten for centuries until the smoky blockages cease to emit radiation, end quote. So, you know, Medvedev has made similar warnings throughout the war. And uh, what's interesting is actually President Biden has, you know, said something similar. If you remember back in October, he said that the chances of nuclear Armageddon were higher now than at any time since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's not just Medvedev, you know, recognizing the risk of this war. But despite Biden's acknowledgement, you know, the U.S. has only escalated its involvement since then. And Medvedev, he's made com- warnings and like this throughout the war, including last week when he said Russia would is not afraid to use nuclear weapons to defend itself, which came after Putin suspended Russia's participation in the new start. And where that stands right now, you know, the U.S. is saying, hey, let's talk about New START, which is the last remaining nuclear arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia. It limits the deployments of warheads and launchers. Russia is saying, basically, you know, you need to take steps to de-escalate over Ukraine before this treaty is going to be revived. And Putin's also saying that the nuclear arsenals of the U.K. and France need to be taken into account in this treaty. So... Who knows exactly what it would take, but I would guess it would take the U.S. stepping back and not, you know, encouraging this war to continue. All right, the next one here, Janet Yellen visits Ukraine and she announces uh, some new aid. So Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen visited Ukraine on Monday. You know, this is another visit from a U.S. official, and she was there to discuss the additional $10 billion in new budgetary aid for the country. And that's this aid that goes directly to the Ukrainian government to pay for things like government services and pensions. So while she was in Kiev, Yellen announced that Ukraine would be receiving $1.2 billion as the first tranche of this massive $10 billion aid package. So they're going to be getting it, you know, in a few waves And Ukraine is expecting to have a budget deficit of about $38 billion this year. And they're looking to the U.S., the EU, the IMF, and and others to foot the bill. So the U.S. is promising at least to pay for $10 billion of that $38 billion budget deficit. And again, this money is being pulled from that $45 billion that was authorized by Congress in December. And if that is spent at the rate of previous aid packages, they're going to exhaust that by the summer. Um, So, you know, there's a chance that come summer they get more aid approved. So they're going to try to give Ukraine more of this budgetary aid for this year. But it really is just something that it's just money that they're giving directly to the Ukrainian government. Again, despite, you know, the corruption that we used to hear about a lot more before the Russian invasion. Um, And the Biden administration has told Ukraine that similar aid packages might be harder to pass in the future. Uh, Once this 45 billion runs out, they're saying they might not be able to get another one, you know, that big. 
But Yellen's message while she was in Kiev was that the U.S. would support the country for as long as it takes. That thing you keep hearing U.S. officials say, that's their mantra. She said, quote, as you do, I want you to know this. You are not alone. We are with you. The United States has your back and we will stand with you for as long as it takes, end quote. Uh, all right, so the next one here, a U.S. spy plane flies through the Taiwan Strait. A U.S. Navy surveillance plane flew through the Taiwan Strait on Monday amid heightened tensions between the U.S. and China, drawing a rebuke from China's People's Liberation Army. That's the PLA. So the PLA's Eastern Theater Command said in a press release that China opposed the U.S. action. They accused the U.S. of deliberately disrupting the um region and jeopardizing peace in the area the u.s navy's seventh fleet which is based in japan they announced a flyover of a p8a poseidon aircraft which is a surveillance plane through the sensitive waterway saying that the u.s will operate anywhere international law allows including within the taiwan strait so u.s warships go through the taiwan strait quite a bit about once a month uh is the rate that they've been going through but surveillance planes don't fly over the waterway as often. According to the South China Morning Post, Monday's transit was only the second time in eight months that a U.S. warplane made the flight. And the last time, at least the last time that we know about, was in June 2022. It was a similar flight. It was a P-8. And it was two weeks after China said that the Taiwan Strait was not international waters as Beijing considers Taiwan to be its own territory, of course. Um, so they said that, you know, protesting the presence of U.S. and other Western warships that have been going through the Taiwan Strait. And, of course, the U.S. responded by, you know, sending a warplane through there. Uh, and U.S. warplanes, they have a much heavier presence over the South China Sea, where they often encounter Chinese aircraft. Frequent U.S. flights in the region make an accident, in, you know, we're talking about the South China Sea here, makes an accident between the two militaries more likely, something I'm always talking about, and that could quickly spiral into a full-blown conflict because of the poor status of U.S.-China relations. Um, all right, so the next one here, another Taiwan story. Taiwan to criminalize spreading rumors during wartime. So Taiwan is preparing for a future conflict. And they are expected to pass a new law that would criminalize spreading rumors or disinformation during wartime, uh, preparing for martial law, as the island takes more steps to prepare for a future conflict with China. So Taiwan's defense ministry has submitted a revised version of the island's all-out defense mobilization readiness act. So that's a law that outlines rules during mobilization for war. The defense ministry has proposed a law that would put government controls on the spread of information through media organizations, including any kind of news organizations and publishers, whether online or in print, uh, you know, government control over the media, similar to what Zelensky did after the Russian invasion. The punishment for spreading rumors or disinformation during wartime could be up to three years in prison or about a $32,000 fine. According to Taiwan News, the sentence could be increased by 50% if they determine the person knowingly uh, put out false information online. 
So the proposed law has raised concerns about censorship from the opposition Kuomintang party. That's the KMT. According to the Times of London, Hung Meng Kai, who is a KMT, KMT lawmaker, said that the law could be misused during peacetime to undermine free speech and wants the government to clarify how it would use the authorities. Wang Ding Yu, who is a lawmaker from the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, that's the DPP, they favor the harsh punishments and said, uh, Wang said that it's necessary to use them against threats from what he called the evil neighbor, referring to mainland China. Taiwan has been taking other steps to prepare for a future war with China, including by extending compulsory military service from four months to one year, which will take effect in 2024. President Tsai Ing-wen, she announced the extension in December, despite the risk of the move hurting her chances of re-election in 2024. So Tsai's DPP, they lost big to the Kuomintang in the local elections that were held in 2022. That caused Tsai to resign. So the big thing to watch for with Taiwan is the coming election in 2024. If the Kuomintang takes control of the presidency and the, and the parliament, they might work to ease tensions with Beijing. It could really change the way things are, are heading when it comes to U.S., China and, and Taiwan. They favor a more friendly posture toward the mainland. They just sent a, deleg a big delegation to China, to the mainland, and after that, China sent their own delegation who met with Kuomintang members. Uh, so, you know, again, that's something that could really change things. The U.S. might try to influence that election. I know the Kuomintang has been kind of also trying to lobby in Washington um, as they're preparing for these next elections. You know, right now, if I were to just guess, I would say that the Kuomintang is probably going to win in 2024. But that's just based on my very surface level knowledge of the situation. I'm not really sure the intricacies of Taiwanese politics. So, uh, you know, my prediction probably isn't the best. But again, it could really change things uh, and, and maybe ease tensions um, in that region. All right. The next one here, Japan to buy 400 U.S. made Tomahawk missiles. So Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said Monday that his country plans to purchase 400 Tomahawk missiles from the U.S., a deal that will break from Tokyo's post-World War II policy of only having weapons for self-defense purposes. So it was first revealed in December that Japan would purchase these Tomahawks. We weren't sure the exact number. Now they're saying 400 of them, and they have a range of over 1,000 miles. So that puts a lot of targets in China in range, also North Korea. Tokyo has set aside $1.5 billion for the missiles, and they plan to purchase them in the next fiscal year. It could take a while for them to be delivered. I'm not sure exactly how long that, that might take. And the U.S. has welcomed this decision, welcomed Kishida's plan to obtain what he calls counter-strike capabilities. Of course, he insists this is still you know, self-defense measures. Uh, but it definitely is a break from the post-World War II constitution that was imposed on Japan by the U.S. You know, occupation forces, uh, you know, what they call pacifism. Uh, but Japan does have a pretty serious military, you know, before they're taking all these steps anyway. But technically, uh, you know, they're for self-defense purposes. And the Tomahawk purchase is part of this Japan's 
big military buildup. You know, they're not just buying these missiles. They're also going to double their defense budget by 2027. You know, that's that's a huge increase in military spending. And it will make Japan the third biggest military spender in the world, third to uh, just behind China, which, of course, China is second to the U.S., but the U.S. outspends China by a lot. I forget what exactly the numbers are, but I think China's around somewhere around 200 billion in the U.S. Just the NDAA now is over 800 billion. And then if you factor in other intelligence agencies and stuff, you know, we get to the one trillion mark pretty easily. Um, but the military buildup is aimed at China. This is all about China. It comes after Japan released a national security strategy that named Beijing as the biggest strategic challenge, echoing language in the Pentagon's 2022 national defense strategy. Back in January, the U.S. and Japan announced a series of steps that they were taking to increase military cooperation. One of the plan involves deploying a new unit of U.S. Marines to Okinawa's islands, that will be armed with anti-ship missiles. And uh, the head of U.S. Marine Forces in Japan recently told the Financial Times that this increased military cooperation with Japan and other allies in the region, such as the, the Philippines, they're doing this to prepare for war with China. U.S. military officials are saying that outright. And he said he compared it to the war in Ukraine. He said that the U.S. was setting the theater in the region the same way that it did in Ukraine after 2014. Um, all right, the next one here. Egypt's foreign minister visits Syria for the first time since 2011. So Egyptian foreign minister Sami Shukri met with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in Damascus on Monday, making him the highest level Egyptian official to visit Syria since war broke out in the country in 2011. So a significant visit. And it came, it was about uh, expressing Egypt's support for Syria following the earthquake that killed at least 5,900 people in Syria and 44,000 in Turkey. His visit came after a delegation of senior Arab lawmakers made the trip to Damascus. That was on Sunday. Um, so regional countries, you know, are warming up to the Assad government. The situation between Egypt and Syria, they have been rocky, their relations, but Egypt has maintained formal diplomatic relations with Damascus for most of the time, even though, you know, they haven't had any high level contacts like this. They only briefly suspended them in 2013, but then they were resumed the same year, I believe, after Sisi came into power. Um, but Syria was suspended from the Arab League, which is based in Egypt in 2011, and they have yet to be reinstated. And the U.S. is opposed to regional countries normalizing with Syria and they refused to engage with the government in Damascus even after the earthquake. Following the earthquake, State Department spokesman Ned Price said that it would be counterproductive for the U.S. to work with Assad's government on relief efforts. As I've gone over a lot, the U.S. issued a 180-day exemption for its sanctions on Syria that applies to transactions related to earthquake relief. But U.N. experts say the exemption is not enough and are calling for the U.S. to fully lift the sanctions, which are designed to prevent Syria's reconstruction. And following his visit to Syria, Shukri, the Egyptian foreign minister, he went to Turkey. And they haven't had great relations either, so I think that was another significant visit. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot more of this. Countries looking to normalize. Again, Egypt technically didn't sever relations, but, you know, 
the reality is Assad isn't going anywhere and countries in the region are recognizing it and they're they're going over there and talking to Assad despite, you know, US opposition to the uh to what they're doing. You know, the US is saying outright that they don't support this, but a lot of countries um aren't listening. All right, the next one here, Netanyahu and other Israeli officials deny settlement freeze after the Aqaba summit in Jordan. So just hours after a meeting between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, which ended in a joint statement outlining an Israeli commitment to suspend discussions on new settlements in the occupied West Bank, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that the building of Israeli settlements will continue to go ahead. So they had this meeting. And it looks like, you know, they put out the statement with the PA saying that they would consider suspending new settlements. But then Netanyahu just said no right after. And, and this article is from the Middle East Eye. It says that the seemingly contradictory remarks led to confusion as a number of Israeli officials were quick to deny the freezing of settlement construction in the West Bank. The meeting, which took place on Sunday in the Red Sea city of Aqaba in Jordan, was also attended by Egypt and the United States. According to a joint communique released by the U.S. State Department on Sunday, Israel committed to stop discussion of any new settlement units for four months and to stop authorization of any outposts for six months. Shortly after the communique was released, Netanyahu tweeted that there will not be any freeze to settlement construction. And again, you know, this comes after they put Bezalel Smotrich, who is a uh, a uh, member of Netanyahu's coalition who was a settler himself. He was just put in charge, basically, of the West Bank. What I've seen uh, from, I read in Haaretz today that they say this basically means he's going to be the governor of the West Bank is how they put it. And he's going to have a lot of power over not just expanding settlements, but also, um, you know, uh, demolishing Palestinian homes and Palestinian con and construction and not approving any new Palestinian buildings or anything so you know what they call this slow de facto annexation is really uh stepping up and uh so the next one here this is an article actually from uh chinese media that interviewed eric garris who is the co-founder of antiwar.com and my boss and it's an interesting interview you could go check out uh and he basically says how you know the u.s does not care about ukraine they care about you know controlling the world um, so go check it out. You know, it's a uh, getting around and they're translating it into a bunch of different languages. And they reached out to him after seeing his speech at the Rage Against the War Machine rally in San Francisco, which was cool. So go check that out. Uh, there's going to be video, too, on it because it was a video interview uh, as well posted in the blog. But that's it for the news. It was a bit of a slow day. I hope some of this stuff I'm going over isn't too redundant. I know it's kind of some of it was similar to things I've gone over before. Um, but go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Gerald Salente. Joe Biden disparages George Washington on President's Day with trip to Kiev. And I thought this was interesting because, you know, I didn't realize maybe I didn't put two and two together that when Biden went to Ukraine, it was President's Day. And he points out here that it contradicts George Washington's, you know, 1796 farewell address when he said to stay out of foreign entanglements. Um I just thought that was a good point. And he also spoke at the Rage Against the War Machine rally, and he links to that in here if you want to check out his speech. And we have one from Ron Paul, the anti-war movement roars back to life. So he seems to be pretty encouraged by that 
anti-war rally. And and that's great to see that Ron Paul, somebody who's been doing it for so long to say that the anti-war movement is roaring back to life. So go check that out. It's a little recap of, uh, of the rally. One from Justin Logan, NATO will live forever until it doesn't. That's over at Responsible Statecraft. One from Branko Marchteach, the state of Ukrainian democracy is not strong. That's over at Jacobin. And our spotlight is from Mitchell uh, Plitnik. Israel has quietly annexed the West Bank and Biden stays silent. That's over at Mondo Weiss. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what the Biden administration says after that. You know, the Netanyahu, the Israel has this meeting, put out the statement and then contradicts it, you know, when it comes to the settlement, see what they have to say. Uh, but that is it for me for today. Uh, you could always support us antiwar.com slash donate, like, and subscribe to the show on YouTube, share it around, tell your friends, all that good stuff. Uh, but I will talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.